Romans 2, and I want actually to read verse 12 and then skip down to verse 16 just to omit the parenthesis from verses 13 to 15 to carry the thought, and then we'll read through the remainder of the chapter. So Romans 2 and verse 12, and then skipping to verse 16. For as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Behold, thou art called a Jew, and restest in the law, and makest thy boast of God, and knowest his will, and approvest the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law. And are confident that thou thyself art a guide of the blind, a light of them which are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, which has the form of knowledge and of truth in the law. Thou therefore which teachest another, teachest thou not thyself? Thou that preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? Thou that makest thy boast of the law, through breaking the law, dishonorest thou God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you, as it is written. For circumcision verily profiteth if thou keep the law. But if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. Therefore, if the uncircumcision keep the righteousness of the law, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? And shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge thee, who by the letter and circumcision doth transgress the law? For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, And circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. Amen. We'll end our reading. We trust again the Lord to bless the public reading of his inspired word. And I'll ask you again to join together with me and bow our heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come today... We have sung hymns and psalms of testimony of the need of forgiveness of sins. Or we've sung that in the heart of an Old Testament psalm, a truth that we've read of here in the New Testament Scriptures, that you desire truth in the inward parts. And we have sung a hymn of testimony to the depths of our own need And yet to sing a refrain from your word, faithful and just art thou, forgiving all. Lord, give us gracious help of your spirit to have gospel understanding in the things we consider today. We pray them all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. As we've been working our way through the second chapter of Romans, we've commented more than once on the necessity, not only here but everywhere, of dealing with scriptures in their context. Taken out of context, some of the statements in our chapter could be difficult. But in context, the flow of thought is clear. 
Paul has established in chapters 1, verse 18 to 32, the end of that chapter, the condition of fallen man and the need of fallen man outside of Christ. But rather than finalizing his conclusion and then moving from that point forward to expand the gospel as he begins to do in the latter part of chapter 3, he takes time to address a potential objection. It is possible... It's even demonstrable, as Paul will do in the verses we've read today, that some might read this commentary on fallen man, they might agree with its diagnosis, but somehow feel exempt from its condemnation. And while it's not limited to the Jews, remember they're unnamed until verse 17 where we virtually began our reading today. It's not, I say, limited to the Jews. The Jews are ultimately named. But here is a description of those, Jew or Gentile, and we'll see perhaps today how aptly applicable this chapter is to the modern church. Here it's possible to have the traditions of men, the traditions of the elders as the Jews had, and Paul would demonstrate a very real mindset among the Jews that they we're feeling some exemption from the condemnation of chapter 1. It is this heart that Paul is rebuking here. And as we've looked at our study, as we've come through the chapter, we've seen various what we've called standards of judgment. I think I commented that the different commentaries uh, list these at times differently. They enumerate them differently. We gave a number, as it were, to the first one, judgment according to truth. Uh, but some just see that, and other translations would recognize that Paul's saying in that verse that just God's judgment that is just outlined in chapter 1 is right. So the point here is not to get four or five or whatever of these particular standards of judgment and maybe even put a chart up at different, sorry, I almost digressed there, different judgment seats and judgment days and so forth. But it's to understand there's a particular truth that Paul's approaching from different directions. And that truth is that God's judgment is going to be based on spiritual reality. There's a day coming, and if we come to the text we've looked at for today, beginning of chapter, or verse 16, gives the fifth, really, if you will, of these different standards we've enumerated going through. It's a sobering text. It's a sobering phrase. And it follows on the thought from verse 12, as many as have sinned without law will perish without law. As many have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. It doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile, whether you've possessed an abundance of light or a little bit of light, whether you've possessed the Old Testament Scriptures or not. You're going to be judged according to truth. You're going to be judged according to God's law. And he phrases it ultimately, I say in those sobering words of verse 16, in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men. And he's already beginning to get underneath, as it were, the real issue that he's going to really expound upon from verse 17 to the end of the chapter. It's not appearances that matter in the day of judgment. It's reality. The secrets of men are going to be judged in that day by Jesus Christ. I was tempted even to perhaps single that phrase out and make a message from it because it's interesting here that, well, it's reflected in the Gospels. 
Christ says of the Father, He's committed judgment unto the Son. That the Son will be the one of the persons of the Godhead that will render judgment. And I find it interesting that He is the one who shares our nature. But there's a day in which God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my Gospel. So Paul's Gospel that that is going to unfold in this book so systematically and so fully is focusing the hearts of all upon this one thing. And I say the theme, the title that we might give to it is this judgment is based on spiritual reality. That is the theme, that's the context that has been focused upon from all these different directions. And Paul is going to leave, as it were, that hypothetical objector, that old man that he speaks of in the opening verse of the chapter. And then he unfolds from verse 17, Behold, thou art called a Jew. He's going to come down now to focus not merely on this hypothetical objector, but to give real concrete examples of those who felt themselves exempt from the condemnation of chapter 1. Those who felt, yes, there's all these problems with the Gentile world and all its wickedness and all its displays of its rejection of our God. But somehow feel that that description... That condemnation didn't touch them. Now, you could almost say that just on the the terms of logic, that that objection makes no sense. How are the Jews any different than the Gentiles? Where'd they come from? They're part of the same human race. They're part of the same people the whole mass of humanity that were in Adam when he fell. Of course, these are truths that he's going to flesh out fully in the chapters to come. But it's evident that they had, can we say, evolved in their understanding and in their perception of themselves in contrast to other people. And so I want to finish out, if you will, this second chapter today. It is this chapter, I say, wherein Paul's addressing this potential objector, somehow feeling exempt from the condemnation of that chapter. And as we come to understand, and we highlighted the text in our study last week, God is no respecter of persons. God isn't going to judge that day from all these different perspectives, truth, righteousness, the deeds that are manifested in the lives of those that are lost and those that are saved. All of this is going to declare it. We can even borrow a phrase from elsewhere in the Scriptures. The day will declare it. Who is who? And your heritage, your appearances, your ecclesiastical background and your church connections will not avail anything in that day. God's judgment will be based upon spiritual reality. I want just to make three statements to you today from the verses that we've read that conclude the teaching of this second chapter. 
And the first statement of the three is this. Ecclesiastical privileges do not guarantee spiritual possessions. Ecclesiastical privileges do not guarantee spiritual possessions. Now there's some right out of the gate might uh, step back and say, wait a minute, uh, Paul's talking about Jews and you use the church word, ecclesiastical. That's a church word. Well, just a little side note for us here. Uh, we use the word ecclesiastical, we use the word church, even with regard to Old Testament saints. Now, modern dispensationalists uh, don't like that. To them, the church began on the day of Pentecost, and we can't use the word for anybody else except people from the day of Pentecost to the pre-trib rapture and their scheme, and that's the church. Nothing else is church. Well, we can debate that theologically, uh, but the very point of using the word is, what is that body, even in their definition, of the New Testament people? The people called out from the world. They're those that are saved. Well, in the Old Testament, there were a people that were called out from the world. We see that even before Sinai. We see it before the Exodus. People calling themselves by the name of the Lord. We go back into Genesis and find that. But whether it's in the patriarchal period, whether it's in the period of Israel from Egypt until the coming of Christ, whether it's in the New Testament church age, now until the end of time, a people that call themselves by God's name. A people that identify with those that follow God's word and God's truth. And of course, that's where we come into the realities underneath that there's such a thing as a visible church and an invisible church. There is such a thing as people that just have the title just have the appearance, just have the heritage, and don't have the reality. And that's the very thing Paul is highlighting here. But So when we speak of Jews, we can even speak of ecclesiastical privileges. The privileges of church people. The privileges of those that have the truth, that confess the truth. But I say our first statement today is that ecclesiastical privileges do not guarantee spiritual possessions. Paul knowingly outlines the false logic of the Jews. If you read through these verses, you see the bullet points that he puts out that are highlighting their thinking. They were those that prided themselves on being the seed of Abraham. I recall a Jew. You're one that is marked out as this distinct people. Well, we find in the Gospels this boast among those that were opponents of our Savior. I always marvel at this particular phrase of the Jewish leaders, we be Abraham's seed. And that's obvious enough, it's true enough. Then they follow it and say we were never in bondage to any man. It's, it's almost like their whole history it had little windows of time in which they weren't in bondage, but the rest of the time they were in bondage. It's almost what defined them. But yet, that is their profession. But here is this people that can say, we're Abraham's seed. 
And you can look at the privilege of Abraham, you look at the position of Abraham and the outworking of God's purposes, and it was a, a truth, it was a privilege that belonged to them. They make another boast. We boast in God. Verse 17. Well, who was their God? Jehovah. The true God. The creator of heaven and earth. They weren't followers of Baal. They weren't followers of the gods of the Egyptians. Now we see in their history, I never really summarized it this way until a message somewhat recently, but I think it was in our prayer meeting talking about the history of Ezra and Nehemiah. It was a little window of blessing in between the antinomianism of the monarchy and the legalism of the intertestamental period. Those are sweeping generalizations, but if you look at the centuries that they connect or speak of, it really describes them. Well, here are these people that are recipients of God's law. They are those that are boasting of God, we see verse 17. Their God was the true God. The gods of the other nations were false. They were idols. And so here Israel has this heritage and this boast. They were recipients of the law. And if you look at some of the phrases here, we won't get into some of the scholarly uh, discussions as to approving things that are more excellent and uh, what's all involved in that, but they were even working through the niceties, if you will, of ethics at times. They were recipients of the law. It was true. And perhaps the capstone of their boasting was they were those that had received the sign of circumcision. And you even see in their history the use of the word the uncircumcised as a derogatory remark about others. And of course the implication there, a boastful description of themselves. Well, in and of themselves, these things that the Jews held forth as true of themselves were blessings. They were privileges that they possessed that the Gentiles lacked. But the problem isn't in the reality of those privileges. The problem is, is the mindset that they had about those privileges. That somehow just being the possessors of these privileges made them indeed God's people in the ultimate and the eternal sense. And it is this false understanding that Paul's rebuking. The Jews had failed to recognize that they didn't deserve any of these privileges. They didn't deserve the greater light that they had that the Gentiles didn't have. And one of the things in the first half of the chapter that's been powerfully unfolded is their judgment when all these various standards of judgment are going to be brought to bear, their judgment is going to be more severe than the judgment of the Gentiles who didn't have these amounts, if you will, of extra light shining unto them. And so here the Jews had become satisfied with the externals. 
And they were confident that they occupied a superior position to the Gentiles. The Gentiles had needs. The Gentiles had problems. The Gentiles had sins that didn't belong to them. This is one of those times of the many in my ministry where I wish I had pulled out a quotation from someone I was reading and filed it away somewhere that I'd be able to find the reference. But the truth that I failed to document and recall who said it was this. The seasons in which you find Israel unwilling to acknowledge the acceptance of the Gentiles. Where you find Israel unwilling even to rejoice in the acceptance of the Gentiles. Are the seasons in which Israel has failed to recognize that her own standing is based upon grace. That her own standing is undeserved. If we recognize our position as being accepted with God is undeserved, then we can happily welcome anyone else to be rightly related to God on the same terms. It's like those workers in the vineyard that bore the heat of the day and complained that the owner of the vineyard would pay the same to those that only worked there at the end. It was an absence of a heart of grace. So I say ecclesiastical privileges do not guarantee spiritual possessions. And Paul's going to highlight this as we come to the latter part of the chapter and really cry out most pointedly about the whole issue of their circumcision. That sign of something that they possessed without the spiritual reality that the sign signified. But I want to pause because it's easy for us to read. We can compare the other scriptures. We can read the account in the Gospels. We can read in Acts and see how the Jews reacted to Paul as he came into their synagogues. And we can see their hypocrisy. We can see their blindness. We can see their self-righteousness. We can see their hatred of Christ. Ultimately. I mean, they, they still would boast and hope for their Messiah. But Jesus of Nazareth didn't fit the description that they had found for their Messiah. They twisted and misunderstood their own Scriptures. It's easy for us to think about them and the context and the historical truth of the New Testament and Paul's description of them here. But I say, how much of this is applicable to modern day Christianity? People that have been as Israel was, a privileged people. People that have been born into families and churches and nations. I mean, these days are fading fast from memory, but we speak of and have a word in the English language called Christendom. The nations where Christianity and the Scriptures prevailed. But did it become possible? Did it ever happen 
in the history of the church that some of this same self-righteous, self-centered thinking would creep in as it had among the Jews. Could it be true today as it was in the first century when Paul wrote here rebuking this Jewish mindset that ecclesiastical privileges do not guarantee spiritual possessions? I was thinking in their multiplied examples of this, but I was thinking of one that stood out to me in my college days, studying a church history course, and we were brought to the halfway covenant and the days that preceded the Great Awakening. Jonathan Edwards' great sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. The impact that it had in New England and a change, a move of God's Spirit, a revival of such a nature. I mean, you see some of the records of that and a narrative of surprising conversions and so forth. But a work of God that came with such power that it was called the Great Awakening. And the reason even that language was used, why? Because what happened, this wasn't that there were all these unchurched, wicked, ungodly people like surround us today. Everybody was in church. Everybody was a church member. That was New England. The awakening was that people that were in church, people that were church members, were awakened to the fact that they were lost, that they were needy, that they needed to be born again. I say it stands out to me, it's because it was the first time in my upbringing that I kind of had one of the I'll borrow one of the sayings from over in Northern Ireland. One of the pennies dropped. I had a penny drop. Something I suddenly understood. A little bit about the whole argument of paedo-baptism. Because what had happened that preceded the Great Awakening was this. The churches had fallen into a backslidden state. There was a generation that had come along that was, for the most part, unconverted. They were church going, they were church members, but they were lost. They'd never been born again. Well, in the teaching of not Rome, but Protestant confessional paedo-baptism, it's the children of believers that are baptized that receive that sign of the covenant. And what was the normal expectation in prayer is that as those children grew within that covenant community, they were brought up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, that one day they would come to conversion, in the language they used, that they would own the covenant. They'd make it their own. It would become more than just what mommy and daddy taught me. It would become more to them than just what I was taught at church and what everybody around me confesses and believes. That they would have new life. They'd be born again. But there was a generation to whom in the masses it didn't apply. Well, they began to marry and have children. They bring their children to be baptized. Church leaders rightly responded to them. Well, really, we can't baptize your children. You can't baptize my children? Why? What's wrong with my kids? Well, you're not a believer. Well, I'm a church member. It doesn't matter. You're not a believer. And the church just said, we've got to deal with this. 
It's a big problem. It affects a lot of people. So what do they do? They initiated a halfway covenant. Okay, you may not be a believer. There may not be evidence of grace in your life. But if you were baptized when you were an infant, and you belong to the church, and you come regularly, and you're in membership, then we'll baptize your children too. And they really went against their own teaching. And it's this generation that had the, the sign without the reality to whom Edwards and others began to preach. You need to be born again. You, church-going people sitting here, are indeed sinners in the hands of an angry God. And it was these churched, baptized, unsaved people that were confronted with spiritual reality that began to confess their sins. Well, we can look at that example from American church history and perhaps somehow still feel distant from it. But how often this is a danger. And you know, the danger that faced Edwards and the contemporaries there was not really a reflection at all upon the practice of infant baptism. You didn't find Edwards saying, we're going to fix this problem. We're going to switch over to believer's baptism like the Baptists. That wasn't the remedy to the problem. The remedy wasn't, let's apply the sign with a little different application. No, the remedy was, you must be born again. Because you can have the sign in a Baptist context. I remember in the early days of our church here, there was a family visiting and from every appearance, uh, you know, we were about the only church in town at that time that embraced the doctrines of grace and was happy with the Puritans and things like that. And, and yet this brother said, you know, Reggie, I don't think we're going to be able to come along. I said, look, that's no problem. If the Lord's not leading you here, I'm certainly not going to try and drag you in. But I asked him just what his thoughts were, and it was the, the baptism policy, the open policy. He said, I just don't know if we can be there with unsaved, baptized people that paedo-baptism is going to have present. I said, fine. But I said, let me just ask you this. You're from a particular Baptist church. I familiar with it. I said, do you believe everybody in this church that's been baptized and is a member based on that is really born again? And he got kind of a sad smile on his face and said, no. I said, when I think that through, in a Baptist context, in a believer's Baptist conviction, how do you come to the point of baptism? You make a profession of faith. You present yourself to the church leadership based on that profession of faith as somebody that's already a believer, already born again, and therefore able to take the sign of baptism. Right. And yet, you say that it's your opinion that there are many in that church, multitudes in other churches of this persuasion that have received the sign and yet are still lost 
And you add to that, you can have a little bit of the, the testimony of the church leadership underneath that, well, they baptized me, they think I'm saved. I said to him, which one's worse? He really couldn't answer, and how can you? I mean, we, it wasn't an argument, it was just to think about it. The flesh can abuse signs. No matter what particular sequence is applied to them, if you will. It's not the sign. It's the spiritual reality that you need. Ecclesiastical privileges do not guarantee spiritual possessions. And it's a sober truth for those raised in Christian environments to realize. But secondly, and we must hurry, I would suggest to you this statement. Resting on privileges produces blind hypocrisy. Resting on privileges produces blind hypocrisy. If you read through Paul's description here of the Jewish objector to the thought that they would be under the same condemnation as the Gentile world described in chapter 1, you find here that he sees and discovers in this objector Imaginary till verse 17, and now the prevailing mindset of the Jewish mind at the point of his writing. He sees here that there is a sinful self-confidence that has been produced in the life of this objector. Resting on these ecclesiastical privileges, feeling that they, in a spiritual sense, distinguish him from the rest of the world and its condemnation. Produces, I say, a self-confidence. It produces that self-righteousness that ultimately becomes despised by the Gentile world itself. Now there's going to be, in his unfolding here, evidence of a need of the inward working of the Spirit If you go down to the last verse of the chapter, I don't want to take a lot of time on this, just something we'll say in passing, but there's discussion here when it says here he's a Jew which is one inwardly, circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men but of God. There's a question there about whether spirit should be the small s as it is in our authorized version or a capital S with reference to the Holy Spirit. Um, and some suggest, and perhaps rightly, that Paul's already by anticipation introducing the truth he's going to unfold in chapters 5, 6, 7, 8 in particular, about the work of the Spirit in regeneration. The work of the Spirit in producing this spiritual reality in contrast to the mere ecclesiastical privileges. But the Jews that had boasted, the Jews that had produced this self-righteous tenor of them being different than the others. And if you go through Acts and you even look historically and see what was true in the Gentile world as the gospel spread, the Jews in the synagogues, as they met, as they worshipped, had garnered the attention of many people in the Gentile world. The Gentiles had seen the results of their abandonment to their pleasures and their sins and their lusts. They'd seen the havoc that it was wreaking in their society. And they said, this is bad stuff. 
Much like some people in our generation look around at what is being paraded, what is being suggested as virtuous and great and express yourself and we see it every day. It's put before us. It's we use the phrase, it's crammed down our throats every day. Live like that, it's great. And there are even people of the Gentiles that said, no, it isn't that great. It's wrecking our world. And they were impressed with the, the Jews. You know, they don't live this way. Let's go listen to what they're doing. And these that were proselytes, these that were Gentile observers at the synagogues, actually became some of the first converts of the apostle when he traveled the Gentile world. It was the loss of some of these Gentile observers and the the pride that the Jews felt about these Gentiles paying attention to them and their lifestyle that when they went and then some of their own people believed what Paul said and went and started following this Jesus that all of a sudden their reputation and their pride is a little diminished. And that's where we see the real hatred against the Gospel's origins are in the New Testament. The self-righteous Jews of the synagogues who did not rejoice in the message of Jesus. They did not receive and rejoice in the preaching of grace. Because what they were promoting, what they were glorying in, what they were boasting in, we're different than other people. We're better than them. And one of the things that actually stands out as Paul begins to unfold here. You, you boast in the law. You speak about the lawbreakers on the one hand, but do you break God's law? Some suggest, and I think there's truth in it, that what Paul is doing here in this rehearsing of these phrases one right after another is the same thing Christ was doing in Matthew 5, where he contrasted murder with hatred, where he contrasted lust with adultery and said that you're guilty of this lesser one, if you will, you're you're guilty of the greater one as well. That's a truth that certainly underneath and true when Paul is saying this with regard to the Jews. But the other aspect of it is, and if you read the Gospels, and then if you go into some of the intertestamental writings and of the Jewish fathers, what they were actually saying about themselves. Commentators point out some of the fathers that even said that Abraham stood at the gates of hell and would not allow any circumcised of his children to enter in there. So if you're circumcised, you're never going there. But yet the very sins that Paul outlines here, it was true of the Jews. And the Gentiles, some of them would see that. And they would blaspheme the name of God through the Jews. Here you are boasting that you're something that we're not. And yet there you go. And I ask you, is that not true today just as much as it was in the first century? Our world loves to see a Christian, particularly a Christian leader, particularly a Christian leader who has spoken out against sin in our generation. They love to see them fall into sin. Because then they can cry hypocrite. 
And then they can comfort themselves all the more in going their own way. Paul highlights that reality here that the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you. Verse 24. Resting on privileges produces blind hypocrisy. You mingle in the self-righteousness, all of the other pieces of this ugly thing. Paul again is highlighting this theme of spiritual reality. You need a real testimony instead of a false profession. But let me quickly come to our third statement. If ecclesiastical privileges do not guarantee spiritual possessions, and if resting on these privileges produces blind hypocrisy, this whole sin of presumption, and again, how many even, we don't have to limit it to the Western world so generally, but even among modern Bible-believing churches, are there not many that fall into this sin? But our third statement is this. Spiritual reality demonstrates gospel truths. Spiritual reality demonstrates gospel truths. Now these four that I put before you, the first of them is collecting, if you will, truth from before and after our second chapter. But the first thing that I would put before you underneath here is that the substance of the covenant of grace is the satisfaction of God's law. Paul has already stated in his thesis, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, that is, as it is written, the just by faith shall live. He's already put that theme of justification by faith alone, from, faith, from start to finish, it's faith. But the righteousness of God is revealed in this. There's a righteous standard that he's going to unfold. He's already unfolded it from the negative side in chapters 1 and 2. What is this that's written on the hearts of men that they can't get away from, that they try and suppress? What is this conscience that speaks to them, but in understanding that there is a God who's created them, He's created them as moral, responsible beings created in His image to walk after His image. And we have transgressed that. And yet the only way to be accepted with Him is to fulfill that. And of course, when you come to chapter 5, more than any other place, save perhaps 1 Corinthians 15, the explanation of how this substance of that gracious gospel covenant of the satisfaction of God's law being met, that is put before us. So the substance of the covenant of grace is the satisfaction of God's law. But another reality, or another gospel truth that spiritual reality puts on display is that the covenant sign, circumcision, baptism for the new covenant people, the covenant sign is useless without the substance. And one of the things that I wanted to sing Psalm 51 today, Thou desirest truth in the inward parts, 
But you think through, this isn't some strange new idea from the New Testament. The book of Deuteronomy, the books of Moses put before them. Circumcision is an outward sign of an inward thing. It's your hearts that must be circumcised. The prophets cry out in the same way. And so if the covenant sign is useless without the substance, we also see and read here that the substance is sufficient without the sign. There are people that have spiritual reality. People that are born again that have never been circumcised. There are people that are born again today that have never been baptized. Now, I'm not suggesting that Christians should be unbaptized. We see the command. We see the the sign. We see the structure in the New Testament church just as in the Old. But yet, of course, the classic example, the thief on the cross. The Lord doesn't say, well, let's get them to take you down, baptize you, and then put you back up here, and then you can be with me in paradise. And we can flesh out that truth from other directions. It's spiritual reality that's the real thing. But the last truth, the last gospel truth unfolded here in this challenge to this self-righteous, religious, ecclesiastical professor that thinks he's somehow different than other sinners is the presence of saving power And here's where we could even debate that small or capital S there in verse 32 or verse 29 rather. The presence of saving power is evidenced by a changed heart and life. Or we could borrow the phrase from Hebrews, holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. We're not justified by works. But justified people are a changed people. And the whole thing Paul is dealing with in Romans 2 is here are people that had ecclesiastical credentials and they were lost. And from all these different directions, the standard of judgment is based on spiritual reality, not on ecclesiastical privileges. And people that have the spiritual reality are a changed people. And here the Apostle, I say, is dealing with an objection that is aimed at Jews. It is named in that latter half of the chapter as the Jews, but applicable beyond the mere race. Applicable to any that feel like their connection to truth. And we're not talking about false religions, we're not talking about idolatry, we're talking about the true church, the true Bible, the true God. That somehow their mere connection with that by birth or religious affiliation, that that somehow exempts them from the spiritual realities of being lost, being a condemned sinner and needing the grace of the Gospel in order to be accepted with God. Paul doesn't just jump from chapter 1 into the middle of chapter 3 and speak about that condemnation and then unfold the Gospel. He pauses to make sure that everybody, religious or irreligious, exposed to the Bible or not exposed to the Bible, 
that everybody understands they have the same need of the same Savior, of the same grace, of the same new birth. They need spiritual reality, not just ecclesiastical credentials. And I pray the Lord will convince all of us the very same truths today. Let's bow our heads together. Lord, we come and ask. We have put forth for the last many, many minutes truths that I doubt any here would seek to contradict. But Lord, give us discernment and help of your Spirit to apply the truth in every case. Lord, give us a a holy fear of that fleshly tendency to somehow exclude ourselves from condemnation by thinking we are different than others. We're different than the world. No, we stand in need of sovereign, forgiving grace. So grant us, Lord, to understand and then even to rejoice that such grace is given. Even as the one writing the words called himself the chief of sinners. He understood so much of this heart because for a season that heart had belonged to him. Lord, we're grateful you broke through that heart and the same Spirit breaks through ours. Lord, bless your word to us. Go with us as we part one from another. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.